Hello and welcome to the IOTA Unum podcasts from the Latin Mass Society. In the company of some great friends of tradition from around the world, we will be drilling into some of the fundamental issues affecting us today in the church and the world. It's my pleasure today to introduce Tim Stanley, uh, writer at the Daily Telegraph, uh, to talk to me about his book, Whatever Happened to Tradition, uh, which is published by Bloomsbury. Um, good afternoon, Tim. Good afternoon. We're going to address a, a number of questions about the nature of tradition and how it fits in uh, with, with society as a whole, what benefit it might have for people what problems it might create. And this is a moment where a lot of people are talking about tradition. We've just been having a brief chat about um, another book, The Disappearance of Rituals by Byung Chul Han. Um, I've written a review of this for the European Conservative. If any listeners are remotely interested, they could go and look at that. But there's a lot of stuff coming out about this. And, and it may be an example of the uh, owl of Minerva um, stretching its wings at dusk uh, because we are in the final stages of the dissolution of a lot of Western tradition. Um, what is it, however? What is tradition? Um, Tim has a go at defining it in the opening pages of the book. Um, how could you do that in a podcast, Tim? <laughs> Uh, I mean, first of all, just to say we are we are in the last stages of the dissolution of a lot of Western tradition, but I think we're also in the last stages of the dissolution of the dissolution of a lot of Western tradition. Uh, and, and that's something to bear in mind during our conversation, but I, I don't think it's just the tradition is, is running out, but also the people who want to destroy it are, are running out of time as well, which is why this conversation is happening. Uh, as to, to what is tradition, very simply, it means passing something on. So something has been handed on to you and you are passing it on to someone else. That, that, that is the simplest way of defining it. It is a word, it's a very Catholic word in that it's both something that, that describes the thing and an action. So when we talk about a tradition, we mean both the tradition as a noun, but we also imply a verb, which is traditions are in the process of being handed down. Yes, thanks. Um, yeah, so it's connected, it's connected in, the, in the way that it's used uh, within the Catholic. Catholic thought world is connected with with this famous uh, saying of, of St Paul, what I have received I have handed on, uh, yeah. and the word he uses, well in Latin translation is, 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 um, is a verb trado to, to hand on, uh, which uh, ironically also is applied to to people who hand over, uh, hand over people to their enemies, traitors, so the word the tradition is, is, is also connected with treachery which is a bit of an irony but um i think that we need to say something more uh, about this definition i was reflecting on this as i was reading i was reading that opening chapter tim and i felt that it's not quite enough to say that it's handed on because things are handed on which aren't traditions um so for example furniture um uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm, my house is filled with 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 uh, furniture from my various um, deceased ancestors, um, and it's very nice, but it's not a tradition. No. Uh, the furniture itself isn't. So I think that what St Paul was, was in, well, had in mind, um, he didn't say this, but I think it may be obvious to him, and 
other people in the ancient world, the medieval world, the early modern period, anyone indeed, indeed today as well, when they talk about tradition, it's not just something which they've received, but it's something which imposes some kind of obligation. on Yes. Yes, I think that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I started big and broad, partly because I want to reel people in. And I want to uh, I want them to look at their own lives and see the role that traditions play within them. But very often what we call a tradition <clears throat> is, in fact, a ritual or a custom uh, and is actually part of a larger tradition. And again, that's part of the trick of the book is to encourage people to join the dots between little things that they might think are the tradition. So, for instance, we all as a family sit down for Sunday roast and then see the connection between that and actually the real tradition, which is family. Um, so I, I agree with you. I, I would say true traditions have durability and depth. Uh, they connect people to other people. Um, and they also have an impact upon one's relationship with history. They plug you into history. They give the individual a, a connection to that which is past, but it also gives them a, a sense of responsibility for handing something on in the future. Uh, so an example, a, a, a good secular example of that is taking a son to a football game. When you take a boy to a football game, you're very often thinking about how you were taken by your father and you take your son in the hope that he will enjoy this experience so much that he in the future will take his children to a football game. So that, that way, carrying out the tradition in the moment connects you to the past, but also commits you, uh, obligates you to think about the future. Yes, it's, it's forward-looking. Um, that's, that's, yeah, now something- it surprises people. Yes, but. yes, yes. Well, it's 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 forward looking and 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 backward looking. But you've received it, and it's up to you to do something with it. Someone else, which um, who's influenced my own thinking about this, is an African uh, theologian called um, Buze, uh, B U Z E T. I think that's how you spell it. Um, who said that for Africans, tradition is so important. Um, that it, it, it really, it's, it, it kind of makes the meaning of their lives and so on. But he also says that for them, it's something that you can step out of. Hmm. It's a resource. Um, you, can, you can do it or you can step out. I think no, that, that's, a, that's a particular experience of Africans in the you know, late 20th, 21st centuries. You can leave your village, you can go to the city and you can, if you want to, you can completely leave all that behind. Hmm. Um, but you don't have to. You can you can you can use it as a resource, um, but also it, it it's something which is um, well it, it has it has this normative normative um, force all the same. Um, you can step out of it, but it 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 causes problems um, mm. on the traditional view. It causes problems. Um, something which I think is very important to do in the context of defending tradition is to distinguish the content from the concept mm -hmm. so the, the 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 idea of tradition in itself is is one thing the specific content it might have is is another so what um are these things often you know very easily you know melded together in in, in debate so people object to i don't know a specific tradition and they say that in the extent this or they, this is a condemnation of tradition or vice versa. Now, one of the things that you, one of your little tricks in your book, Tim, is to say, is to give positive examples of tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, that's, a, that's a, a good argument because you, you can't just reject all tradition. However, there is an argument made in, in, in the West 
which is that tradition in itself is wrong. Yes. Because we should not be bound to anything mm. without our consent. Mm. The bath shouldn't impose itself on us. So it is something wrong. You know, you 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 come aware as you're growing up that people are expecting you to obey the law of the land. Mm. Um, you become aware that people are expecting you to wear certain kinds of conventional clothes for certain occasions. You suddenly realize that your parents are going to expect you to leave home and get a job. And that's all wrong because you haven't agreed to any of that. So, you know, one response to this, of course, is to have complicated theories, which aren't I think very convincing about how in some weird sense you have actually consented without realizing it to all sorts of things um, but a lot of the push from you know Rousseau and and uh, and before and after has been to say well no no we, we simply re refuse to accept that we can be bound like this even accepting that the you know the binding I'm talking about I mean, it's not an absolute thing it's, it's it's nevertheless it's a reason for action it's something you need to take seriously according to the traditionalist yes but all but, uh, but uh, okay I I think that that falls down initially uh, on the basis of human experience which is that we are bound by things even when we try to shrug them off um, and if you did you mentioned Rousseau. And if you take the Enlightenment tradition, well, it's a tradition. So the tradition of trying to throw off tradition and being in opposition to tradition is itself a tradition. And it has with it certain uh, ways of thinking, and it has language, which is passed on and handed down. And the irony is that you'll often find people who are most critical of the concept of tradition hew very closely to inherited concepts and ways of thinking. So a classic is the scientific method. Uh, the kind of people who will say we must stick to reason, uh, we must reject all that which is unproven, we must be, we must, we must stick entirely to, to trial and to error and experience and, and all that sort of thing. They, they are speaking from the perspective of an inherited concept of the scientific method. So that, that's something I find very frustrating when having this argument about tradition is most revolutionary orders either engage with the past because they're rejecting it or as I say, they inherit something and pass it down. Or you'll very often find that they, they, even they try to justify their creation of a new society by claiming that they're rebirthing an old one. Yes. So that even the French Revolution, by its attempt to create a Disneyfied version of the classical world in, in 1790s France, is itself it, realizing that it's not enough just to say we have invented a new order. You must, you must have some sense of authority and authenticity to that order. So the way you do it is you steal from the past. So even those people who claim to have freed themselves from the past invariably try to resurrect it. So on the basis simply of human experience, I don't believe you can do what it is they seek to do, which is to sever uh, yourself off from the roots of your past. The, yeah, it, it's, it's incoherent. Um, I, I'm not sure that, well, I think I think we need to. Well, the argument they would make would be this: that uh, they don't accept this, what you're calling a tradition, as binding in itself. They only accept it uh, as having importance and force, and as something which should guide them, uh, in as much as 
it's correct. <laughs> right, right, right. Objectively yeah. correct. Yes, but the, although the very concept of objectivity in that sense is itself a very Western thing. <laughs> well, that is true, but they are perhaps naive about that. Yes. Or certainly the ones in the you know 18th century were. Um, right. So they've so, achieved something which no other no other point in history have we achieved. They've achieved existence by sheer reason and yep. experiment. Well, well done, but I'm sorry, <laughs> it's, just, it's just not possible. And we can tell it's not possible because mankind keeps changing his mind about things. Yes. If it were that simple, then we would settle on an intellectual order and we presumably would stick to it because we had reached the terminus of human exploration uh, and understanding. But we this never, is, yeah. we're always changing our minds. So it, it doesn't, it, it's nonsense. Yes, well, you're, 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 you are, of course, absolutely correct. But this is the ideal. And you can see it more clearly now than, than ever before of, of, of people who are entirely self-created. Yes. Um, I come into the world naked. I have no attachments, no commitments. I look around and I kind of make a few quick judgments about, you know, which, which kind of scientific method to adopt. I know what, what, what attitude to take towards various things. And I, I adopt, of course, I, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I, I, I adopt things that have already been done, but I make my judgment about them first. Um, and then I spring forth clothed in this, you know, as you say, it, it could be described as traditional, but you've chosen it for yourself. Yes. Now, um, I think it, it is, it's, it's impossible psychologically, historically. Um, it's also impossibly conceptual, conceptually um because because what they're what they're what they're suggesting is that um you can create something enormously complicated mm. something enormously subtle um on the basis of your own intellect yes which is which is not guided by by anything so I, I think all you need to do actually to them is to say in theory if they were perfectly rational they would accept my argument <laughs> all you would need to say to them is on what basis are you making your judgment yes yeah um, on what basis on what basis on the basis of what values and they say oh i've chosen my values how did you choose them hmm. according to what values did you choose your values Actually, yeah. you're gonna you're gonna reach um, rock bottom very quickly. Yeah, and, um, yeah. And, and isn't it funny that everyone chooses the same values? Uh, that if you if you in the abstract dropped everyone as a child in the the four corners of the world and left them completely alone um, in order to explore the truth, um, it's a sort of assumed in the 21st century they would all come up with exactly the same value systems because again we're at some sort of terminus of human reason. But I mean, just to give a, a concrete example of how this plays out in the modern world today, uh, sex and concepts of sex, right? So they, so, so they have now pushed the anti-tradition reasoning to the point whereby they're not even uh, defined by that most uh, primordially inherited of characteristics, their bodies, right? They're not even defined by their bodies. You can't define me that way. And parents will not tell their children what they are. And they will, rise, they will grow up and they will uh, discover their gender for themselves. Now, again, it seems that this tends to end up with them discovering uh, the identity of someone wandering. They rarely ever come out and decide, well, actually, I'm a 1950s housewife. You know, they, they, tend, <laughs> they tend to decide that they are they, are, they are they or them, and they're in a constant ongoing uh, journey of self-discovery. But what I find so strange about this argument 
is I find I'm the one arguing for the scientific method and for biology and fact. Because I'm the one saying there is such a thing as a rooted concept, uh, observable in nature, and accepted until five years ago uh, in science books across the world of male and female. Yes. You're the ones who have decided you have derooted yourself so far. You've even derooted yourself from the logic and the science, which you said was the barometer of all truth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so but, you, you see well, where this ends up. They're, they're entitled to change their minds, aren't they, Tim? So, I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it, that's that's it's it, it's 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 got to the point at which this self-creation can no longer rely on um make use of the scientific method in its, its classical conception and instead it relies on um feelings yes your, just your, your your inner 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 feelings and when they discover where these feelings come from i.e hormones very often, um, yeah. and and um, society, social, they've already rebelled against social expectations, they're, and, and indeed they're already rebelling against hormones. So actually, where are these feelings coming from? Well, that's a question which, I, if they answer it, they'll have to reject whatever it is. Yes. So they would end up, well, they'd have to find up a, a different criterion altogether. Um, but this is, I think, it's slightly misleading to say this is this is a tradition. I mean, it's certainly a trajectory of thought. Oh yeah, no, no. I, it's it's an it's an uncomfortable. I, I I choose it because it's 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 such a current issue. Yeah. Um, but but just to, to step in and say to go back to your model of the African experience, whereby tradition is this thing in the village, you're welcome to stay there and imbibe it or walk away, but you can always come back to it. Well, I regard. Uh, things like science, science and categorizations and male and female and these things, I, I fit that into that model. So uh, I, I'm all for your ability to walk away from your assigned sex if you wish to do. The point is I want the village to be there that we can all come back to and know it's there. Um, I, I, I need categorization and most human beings do. I need the rules, which I think are a facet of tradition, which are handed down. The problem with the modern world is we are burning the village to the ground. Yes. Yes, yes, I, 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 which, which is anti-freedom because to me, true freedom uh, is the ability to uh, throw yourself off the cliff, knowing that there's still a, a, a rope attaching you to the cliff, so you <laughs> feel the joy of flying through the air, but you know you're not going to crack your head on the ground below. Whereas they just cut the rope, yeah. um, and I, I don't know where that ends. I don't know where that ends. Yes, yes, yes. I, I think that's that's you, you you make that point quite well in the book, and I think it's 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 worth. It's worth repeating that traditional societies, I mean, even you know what you might regard as quite you know rigid traditional societies in in, in you know quite a long way into the past, actually they're characterized by people who reject a lot of their norms. Yes. The you know the fool, the the hermit. Yes. The you know the the, the leper in a different way, people who are living outside. Um, and indeed, I mean, the Old Testament prophet, um, you know, the, the holy man, the, the guy who, the high, who kind of steps outside, maybe only by a few inches, but enough to critique what's going on. Um, and this is, by being yeah. recognized as rebelling against the order, they reinforce the existence of the order and they remind us where the boundaries are. So exactly. in yes. the book, I, I, talk, uh, I, I talk about the hijra, which is this third sex class in India. 
uh, which you can broadly call, which outsiders might look at and think, oh, that's their example of trans. And because Hindu society has had this category of trans for a very long time, an outsider might conclude that they have, they have put their finger on uh, gender diversity long before the West has. And I understand why that's an attractive point of view, but what you've got to remember is that the hijra, uh, it could be read quite conservatively, as in it's, it's a third sex class, a bucket into which everyone goes. You are queer, you're effeminate, uh, you're intersex, you're trans, right, you're hijra. Right. So placing everyone into the Hidra class, uh, you, you end up paying a compliment to the order because you're saying everyone outside of that order is over here. And yes, Hindu society has not just a role, but a very elevated role for the Hidra, but it's, it, it's traditional in the sense that it has boundaries and obligations and a yeah. fixed role. So uh, uh, outsiders in the Western society tend to look at traditional societies and because they see people playing with our rules or breaking our rules, they think that society is liberal and it's more progressive and more broad-minded than us. Yeah. Well, no, it's just got a different set of rules and it orders society in a different way, but it yeah. still orders society and has a clear sense of what is normal and abnormal. Yes. Yes, 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 yeah, that's right, that's right. There's a, I, was it, is it in your book that you've got that photograph of the, um, uh, the duel? Yes, the yes. Fencing, the fencing match, I should say, rather yeah. than duel. Um, <laughs> which is really quite, quite funny. I, I, I've seen a, uh, I think I've seen a painting of this. I think it's in the in the royal collection. Of the, it is, and I I couldn't for copyright reasons get the original painting. So right. sort of a cartoon knockoff. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's wonderful. And the the surprising thing is you 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 first look at it and you think that it's it's breaking with gender norms because it appears to depict a woman fencing with a man. But then you discover this was actually the woman was actually a male French diplomat who lived as a woman, and also the man that she he slash she is fighting is also I think from descended from Guadeloupe, uh, so is a mixed race person as well. Uh, I, I stuck this in to reinforce that actually we mustn't work by a, a fraudulent understanding of what the society society of the past was like, yeah. um, and in particular the 18th century. Uh, it is far closer to our sexual norms in many ways than it is to late Victorian society, right. uh, which shows you how these things fluctuate over time and how much pleasure previous societies took uh, in the abnormal and in the exotic. Yes, yes. Although um, the, you know, the criticism is made of that now that, 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 that it's a bit voyeuristic. And I think there may be uh, an element of that in this. Oh, come and see the the black man fighting the you know yeah. the cross dresser um, yeah. there's a kind of element of the um, circus with medieval was disability as well um you that there's a joy in physical difference but it's also by our standards incredibly patronizing and exploitative yes um yes nevertheless the world is a more complicated place than uh, people would have us think yes um, that that brings us on to um uh, the question of of restoration you talk about the fluctuation um, of of social norms, um, uh, particularly about sexuality, and in the Victorian era is 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 a is a good example um, of this, but certainly not the only one. Um, uh, another one would be the reign of Caesar Augustus, the reimposition of traditional yes. norms after a period of of social breakdown, rapid change. Um, maybe war, um, in which things got um, uh, left behind. Um, and the case, it, it happened again in the 1950s after the Second World War, 
there was this huge effort to not just to, to you know to establish the kinds of you know the Atlee Atlee kind of um, social welfare and, and things like that, but also to re-establish family life. Mm. Um, and the female participation rate in the workforce, for example, was lower in the 50s than it had been in the 1930s. Um, actually, not at all surprising um, for, for all sorts of reasons, one of which is just that they were more prosperous. Um, but um, it can be done. It can be done and often has been done. And indeed, the, the, the history of, of any society is, uh, is a history of, of, of oscillation you know, between a more or less stringent um, understanding of, 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 of traditional norms or attempts to, to restore them when they've fallen away for one reason or another. Um, now, that is something, again, I think this surprises people. And when you give them a, a concrete example like the Victorian era um, or any of the others, one reaction that people sometimes have is, well, this is inauthentic. Mm. Which, well, what do you, what do you, what do you say to that? Uh, to a certain extent, that's true. Uh, and very often the people doing it were conscious that they were uh, building something new or bringing something back. Uh, they, 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 they were aware that they, they were playing a bit of a game with the past, but uh, I would say anything which is a conscious attempt to build upon that which is there before, um, it's restoration, but you can have an authentic restoration. And there's a lot of debate in the 19th century about how authentic that restoration was being if they were imposing uh, modern ideas upon what the past looked like, or if they were genuinely trying to go back to what it was like. So this, this debate was happening in the 19th century, but I think any, as I say, any, any attempt to any authentic attempt to restore the past and to engage with it, uh, I think deserves to be taken seriously and not to be dismissed out of hand. Yes. I mean, having said that, the flip side of that is there are regimes which in order to do very new things, borrow from the past to end a complete, to lend them a, a false sense of legitimacy. I think a wonderful example of this uh, is the, the memoir of Benedict XVI, uh, where he talks about growing up in Bavaria which was a, an authentically traditional Catholic society. And when the Nazis come in in the 1930s, um, they spearhead uh, an effort to delegitimize church tradition and replace it with something which they claim is more authentic, mm. which is a pre-existing pagan past. And of course it's made up nonsense. It's, it's dancing around the Maypole nonsense, but actually by trying to give the appearance of a pre-Christian pagan identity, they were able to convince a lot of people that by doing this, you're being more authentically German because you're less Catholic. Yeah. And Benedict observes how uh, successful that strategy is. So it, it goes both ways. I, I think there are very healthy att attempts to, in the 19th century to restore the past. I think the Romantic movement, the Neo-Gothic movement, the restoration, I talk about the restoration uh, uh, of Notre Dame, um, that architectural revival, and particularly healthy movements are those which say, something's dislocated and wrong about our society today. So what was it in the medieval era they had that might be better? So I, I think there are, there, are, there are very moral examples of that, but there's undoubtedly, uh, uh, there's undoubtedly a cynical effort to use the past. But once you get, once you get up close to it and study it, you can tell the two apart because those who are usually using the past for a moral purpose are usually honest and authentic about their use of the past. They're, they're looking for a genuine continuity. Whereas those who are cynical about it 
when you get into it, you usually find the past they are dredging up is completely invented and nothing like the past at all. Yes, 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 that's right. I think what that, that means in practice is that the, you know, these debates about authenticity, what were things really like? You know, what did what did medieval Gregorian chant really sound like? You know, something which which exercised a lot of people in the nineteenth century. Um, those debates are are important, and a a a, um, a movement for of restoration of tradition has to take those debates very seriously, and it, they are an indication of its own seriousness. Mm. That you, you're not just making things up because if you're making things up, it's coming from you. You've got to, to be a, a, a restorer of tradition, to be a traditionalist in a broad sense. You must allow yourself to be formed by what you find in the past. Yes. Not perhaps without any qualifications, but you've, you've, you've got to have that respect for it. Um, so that's I mean, the, the, the restoration of, of ecclesial traditions after the the huge destruction of the French Revolution uh, was absolutely massive. And, and I think this is, it, it's useful to remind ourselves of this because this is something which we need to do all over again, as <laughs> has been done, it was done. Um, and, you know, rebuilding the fabric of churches, uh, building new ones, uh, rediscovering chant, uh, and, and um, rediscovering the monastic life. The yes. Benedictine monasticism was almost completely wiped out by, yes. by, um, by the Napoleonic Wars and, and, and also the reforms that had taken place before them. Um, and that's what, that's what um, um, Garanger was involved in doing. Mm -hmm. So, but, but to say, crucially, yeah. when, when, yeah. if, if, when we do do that, we may find that the past we, uh, we resurrect doesn't, doesn't fit our preconceived notion of what a past brought back to life might resemble. Yeah. So in the 19th century, there is a, a debate within the Romantic movement about uh, what does the past resurrected look like? And William Morris, for instance, was very frustrated with a chocolate box interpretation of the past, yeah. uh, which he saw as inauthentic and not close to the medieval reality. Uh, and in fact, some of William Morris's ideas about how guilds worked and how artisanship worked probably themselves were actually a bit chocolate boxy and inaccurate. Um, likewise today, if we restore churches, we're not gonna, and we do it authentically, we're not gonna restore them so they look like our fixed 1950s idea of the interior of a, of a church, sort of dark and gray. I'm always struck when you get great restoration projects by the, the colorization of churches. Oh, yeah. um, we, we, so so I, I, I just think, um, a good sign of are we being authentic is, is actually if it actually uh, defies uh, our recent historical perception of what the past looks like. Because I, I think once you really get back into it, you'll find that the, the very dim and distant past really looks and sounds and smells very different to our, our, our assumptions about it. Yes, yes. Although it's, it's obviously it's more difficult to, 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 to bring that back. Um, I mean, there's one example of this is, is um, in 19th century ideas of Gothic, mm -hmm. which ends up with uh, bare walls, um, lots of exposed stonework and stone floors or yeah. tiles. Um, and it creates a very distinctive acoustic, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, like a cave, in fact. Uh, now, Gregorian chant works quite well 
uh, in that. Um, but a lot of other kinds of um, music doesn't work at all well, um, much to the frustration of, of, of some modern church musicians. And also preaching is quite is quite difficult until the invention of, of um, amplification at any rate. Um, now, medieval historians will tell you that medieval churches weren't like that. Mm. Uh, you just mentioned the, the colorization, you know, the, the, the vivid colors everywhere, the frescoes, the, the, the paintings of various kinds. And that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is, is they used to they used to hang these have hangings right. fabric on the walls, you know, carpet, what have you, curtains all over the place. And it would have had a radical change to it would have made a big change to the to the acoustic properties of the building. <laughs> so actually it would absorb the sound. It would <laughs> echo around in the same way. Um, but that's now what we think of as a church. Yeah. Um, and at a certain point, one might want to say, well, this is now what we've been thinking of as a church for nearly 200 years. Mm, mm, mm. And yeah, we can certainly experimentally kind of go beyond that, but actually we don't want to, we don't want to take it away completely because no. it's become and because of what we think of as a sacred space. And your restoration might be so radical that you're actually being, uh, you're actually breaking with your own tradition. I mean, if the tradition is a narrative, it's, if it's the accumulation of ideas and properties over time, then sometimes the, the, the effort to get right back to the root actually betrays that process. Um, you know, we, have, we have put pews in churches, right? That's yeah. now people now expect to sit. And if you took them out, um, people might not recognize it as a church, so you you might be undermining uh, your own mission by being too pure. That's yes. Well, that's 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 yeah. So there's a, there's a certain element of of um, being inspired by the distant past, but also maintaining continuity with the more recent past. Yeah, exactly. Yes, um, yeah. I think that's that's it, it, you can't produce a kind of iron rule about how those two factors interact. One just has to be sensitive um, to both, and I think one as one. Of course, it's one of the difficulties that arose with 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 the church reform of the nineteen sixties is people repeating to the very very distant past, um, and at the same time, a past so distant that they it was it was very little understood. So it was just an opportunity for people to project their own ideas and 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 a, a license to for radical change, um, and it's it's. That's a that's a problem because of the the uprooting of people's expectations and and ways of devotion, um, mm. which 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 would happen at the same time. Um, one of the things that you talk about, which is which I think is 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 actually for my money the, the the most interesting discussion in the book is 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 what you say about the idealized past. Mm -hmm. The way that uh, societies in, in their, you know, popular history and uh, you know, national myths idealize the past and um, use that as a guide to, uh, to, to, to what they should do. Could you say something about what that means? This is, this is the chapter about nostalgia. And first of all, again, with the argument about tradition, how you can't escape your past, uh, I point out that the concept of nostalgia, which has been discovered, which was properly identified as a as an almost physical complaint 
uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries. It's been around for a very long time, and, and that's because it speaks to a human need for stability um, and uh, a human need for a sense of place. And as we've moved around a great deal lot more, uh, that has undermined that. People feel derooted, and therefore it's understandable that nostalgia is more frequently experienced. What I argue is that it's, it can obviously be a bad thing, um, but it can also be a good thing in that people use it to establish in their minds uh, an ideal version of the past by which to judge the present. So out of the past and out of the stories we tell about the past, you come up with moral standards. Now, the, the classic example of this is the Second World War, which was undeniably horrible. Anyone would be a fool to think they, they wish they could have lived through it. And much of what we say about it and tell about it probably is uh, exaggerated and elaborated. And you know, Britain had probably a much better war than, say, the Soviet Union did. Nonetheless, by being able to draw out of these stories certain moral ideas about what it means to be British, that we are people who muddle through, that we don't complain, that we look after each other, that we're willing to die for our country. And by uh, applying nostalgia to this so that we establish that as the best time to have been British, we were at our best when we were sacrificing ourselves and dying for our country. We therefore create a useful moral template for the present. And lots of societies do this. And I think it's one way which they, they, they decide how to behave in the present and in the future. They look back at when they think they are at their best and they try to replicate that. Yes. So I, I, think it, I think it's a useful, it, it can be a useful tool. Yes, yes. Well, it, it's, and it's, 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 as you say, it's a very wise point. In the ancient world, in the, well, the Roman Empire, they were always going on about republican virtue. Right, exactly, yes. And yeah. it, 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 I mean, it's interesting to see Augustine, uh, St. Augustine in, in, the, in the City of God, he, he takes them to task for this. So, well, when, when, when exactly was this period of republican virtue? And he kind of looks at the annals of, of, of the Republic, which of course are filled with kind of civil wars and, and, and people killing each other and corruption yeah. and everything else. And, and he says, well, maybe it was about 20 years just here, you know. <laughs> it, it usually doesn't stand up to scrutiny, um, uh, but it's not an argument about fact or detail. It's, it's an argument about, as I say, the moral utility of folk memory. Now, uh, people will say, the other argument is, but if you dig into it, uh, if, if people are nostalgic about the past in principle, and you dig into it, and you find that bad things are being done, well, then that in some ways either, either erodes the truth, or worse than that, uh, you can end up legitimizing a bad past because people think fondly of it. Mm. The reality is when you speak to people, no one is nostalgic for slavery. If they were, that would be perverse, but no one is. No one is nostalgic for being bombed by the Germans. No one is nostalgic for dying of cholera. Again, you'd, be, you'd have to be a sociopath to be nostalgic about any of those things. Yes. They don't, people sort their memories. So that when they talk about slavery, for instance, they will say to you, well, the British banned that. Now, <laughs> that's a very complicated bit of history and there's some truth and there's some fiction in that. But if people said to you, well, yeah, I'm very nostalgic for the 18th century because we own slaves, well, that would be perverse. <laughs> if they say to you, I'm nostalgic for the 18th century because that was when Britain ruled the waves and we used it to ban slavery, accurate or not, I, don't, I, I think that is not quite as immoral. I don't think it's immoral at all. Yeah. Um, certainly not in the way that we, we are told it must be. And again, and again, it all comes back to, uh, we talked at the beginning about tradition and about wiping away the past. Tradition is really about a relationship with history. 
And part of the problem with the current approach towards history, that sense of everything was bad, or at least even the good was tarred and tainted by that which was bad, that you have these sort of original sins like slavery and class and gender. Uh, the problem with that is we have no basis upon which to agree what works. We have no, we have no collective pot of memories to use upon which to build a future. So in much the same way that if you just erode categories so far that in the future you can't even define gender. Likewise, if you just, if you uh, slander the past so aggressively, it becomes impossible even for those radical regimes to imagine the basis upon which they want to reorder society because there's no past society to emulate. Yes. You can't, you cannot regret yes. it if you cannot fairly judge what worked and what didn't work in the past. Yes, yes. I think I think I, some people, perhaps who are you know, trained as you know, in political science, might think that they can work it all out on first principles and and, and think about the the uh, consequences for sociology and all the rest of it without without referring to any actual society where this has happened. But of course, it's it's, it's tremendously hazardous undertaking. Um, and what's happening in a debate? And there's always, you know, in the evolution of our conception of an idealized past is, is a kind of imaginative preparation for imaginative debate about what we should be doing in the future. Mm. It's, it's, it's it, it, the, the, this, the debate about the past, the way it's developed in literature, for example, is part of our national developing self-understanding, part of our understanding of what we should be doing um, and how we should be behaving in the future. Uh, even and this, of course, can be can can happen through uh, attention to aspects of the past which are frankly fictional. So, like like Robin Hood, you know, Robin Hood is an important figure in English self understanding, hmm. and it doesn't matter that he didn't exist. I mean, we know he didn't exist. Yes, yes, well, no doubt there are people a little bit like that somewhere. But you know, it, it, it's set in such a fictionalized past that it's it's. It, it, it's you know, anachronisms are built into it, you know. It, it, you know, so you know, Friar Tuck, you know, for example, was living in the time of King John, you know, before St. Francis had founded the Franciscans. So, you know, well, what's going on there? Well, it, it, it's, it's this kind of imaginative once upon a time, mm. um, which is enables you to just put in all the nice elements and and create the. The, you know the, the conflicts which need to be fought and and the, the people who need to fight them and 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 it's it's tremendously powerful tremendously powerful and it's, it's not supposed to be his factual history but it does it, it's it is part of our self-understanding as a as a nation that we sympathize with robin hood and his merry men and not with the sheriff of nottingham um i don't know whether there's any culture that would sympathize with the sheriff of nottingham but we're certainly it, it's it we're not them <laughs> yeah 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 no I, I agree with you and in the american version it might be bonnie and Clyde. um but although there was Bob, the, the moral story is is less obvious <laughs> again as we as we were saying earlier uh the rebel validates the order because what yes. robin hood typically does is is stand up for a privilege that has been usurped, for a right that has been usurped. And yeah. actually the radical in the story is very often King John or the Sheriff of Nottingham because they are, they, they, they are wiping away the privileges which pre-exist. And, and Robin represents the old order re, having to rebel in order to reassert something which has been lost. He um, is in fact a counter-revolutionary. Yeah, I think so, yes. Yeah, 
yeah no I, I, I that's you're absolutely right um and yes yes and, and as you said earlier I mean even even you know, the revolutions revolutionaries like like the French Revolution uh, or even Marxist revolutionaries they tend to claim that there's some distant thing in the past which they're restoring yeah um because somehow it's it's going to be <laughs> it's totally an escapable part of 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 our discourse in order to make people believe in what you're doing you've got somehow to claim that it was all right in the past you're restoring yeah. the past yeah mm. yeah, yeah. It, i mean what are the one of the things about restoring uh, restoration um that, that that we have to deal with as as traditional catholics is 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 this claim um i mentioned earlier about that is it possible to restore the past or is it authentic in principle to restore something which has been completely destroyed or very largely destroyed and and i always like to point to the you know the old testament um there are four major restorations in the old testament of of the cult of the true god mm -hmm. in in jerusalem because of apostasy or physical destruction at, the, at one point the temple is completely destroyed mm. um at least that's how it's presented to us it has to be rebuilt from the foundations and that's and yeah do they sort of say oh no it can't be done now we're going to move on now no 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 you, you you find the old books you find the old old men who maybe saw hanging around who know who might have an idea of what it looked like yes. um, and you do your best i mean it may well be imperfect uh, but you 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 do your best mm. um, and you you restore it mm -hmm. as much as it's yeah. possible and and judaism is is all about restoring a broken relationship with god uh, and it, it, as a culture it's it's very conscious that there were people who once spoke to god and so the focus upon the past is a way of linking yourself back, like Theseus in the, in the maze. You're, 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 you're working your way back, rolling up the string through the maze to get yourself back to the beginning so that you can get as close to God as possible. And the recreation of, of lost and damaged things is partly about an attempt to return to a previous order that is more authentic because it's older, it's closer to the origins of things, and therefore it might be closer to the truth of things. I mean, whether, whether that is accurate or not is by the by. I think it's an important part of human psychology. It's why people will quite often pay large sums of money for something which is older, uh, even though it is broken, uh, compared to something which is newer. Now, that's not always true culturally, by the way. There are societies which just knock things down and rebuild. Um, maybe, maybe this is something in, inherent to Judeo-Christian society. I don't know. I haven't thought about it strongly enough. But of course, the, the other inno innovation which Judaism comes up with is the notion of the portable tradition. So that ultimately when the temple is sacked, when you are kicked off your land, you can keep the tradition going. And what's amazing is the claims through, uh, through a kind of theater, a domestic theater tradition that you are reliving uh, in, your, in your dining room, things that happened thousands of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And that you and you leave the door open for the prophet to come back and take you back to Jerusalem. So uh, so again, there's an eye to the future there as well. that The prophecy will come true. And even the most sec I, I, I know even secular liberal atheist Jews who perform these rituals once a year and not just out of family obligation, not just out of a sense of uh, retaining what it means to be Jewish, but because there is something psychologically and emotionally which speaks to them.
about yeah. having, being anchored in something that happened thousands of years ago. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Well, it, it, it's it, there is a in, in Judaism, of course, it's, it, it is very much bound up with with a sense of identity, but there's there's, there's more to it as well, um, which is which is the relationship with with God. Yes. Yeah, it, it's it's not necessarily the oldest thing that you want to restore. It's 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 the it's the um, um, the apogee, the, you know, the zenith. So yes, like the early church. Yeah, the early church. Yeah. So they the 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 Greek the, the Athenians you know liked to, the idea that they were restoring the the laws of of Solon, uh, mm -hmm. not the laws of Draco. You know, right. <laughs> yeah. right. So you know, Draco was the previous constitution, which was kind of all about. You know, limiting things to the aristocracy and 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 chopping head people's heads off, you know, for the slightest you know wrongdoing, um, and um, hence the dr term draconian. Um, so that 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 didn't um, you know didn't, didn't appeal to people in quite the same way uh, as as and, and you know so the, the the Jewish history is all about restoring King David, not King Saul. Yes. Um, yes. It, it, so there's a there's a you're. Uh, the traditionalist is is selective. Mm -hmm. it, 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 there is a there is an exercise of, of judgment. The judgment is guided by the tradition, but also it it it, it turns back on it as well. Um, there's a there's a there's a a um, a process of of discernment, um, if you like, um, about about what tradition is 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 telling us. Now, nothing we've said, in fact, um, we haven't mentioned yet divine tradition, um, traditions which are established by God, mm. um, or traditions which are in some sense guaranteed uh, by the ordinary magisterium of the church. Um, and I didn't propose to go into that, um, but obviously these are special cases in which there's a, a special kind of normativity and also a special kind of guarantee um, of what's going on. Although even then you, you, you have to be careful about how you understand them, how you implement them, what it means in concrete terms, um, so on. And, and, and I mean, I, I don't go into too much in the book because it's a heavy concept which will alienate a lot of, of readers to say, look, I, I, here's the special category of traditions which I'm saying we have to pay special attention to because it's established by God. But uh, you, can, you can see that categorization obviously in many civilizations, notably the Islamic, which creates a rod for the back. Because when the, when the holy book is the literal word of God, very difficult to do what you just described of selection and uh and to, it's very difficult to have the elders going through it and saying here's but there, there is an effort in the early uh, era of islam to do precisely that and you get the quran and the hadiths and all that you get an attempt to select but thereafter it's the word of god and it becomes very difficult to reinterpret it so those divine traditions can operate not just in a different category but uh it, 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 they, they can become very difficult to interrogate in a way that perhaps would be a good thing. Yes, 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 indeed, indeed. Okay, well, our last category of, of things to discuss uh, was, was something else which I liked very much in, in the book, which is um, what you say, in fact, Bayon Chul Han also talks about this, is, is the, the traditions surrounding death. Yes. And, yeah. um, and and burial and um, just just to step in and say yeah there's a lot of death in the book <laughs> I, think that's part, I think that's partly because frankly uh, i've not married i've not had kids and so probably uh my my greatest personal experience uh, of of 
ritual tradition in this country, which is, oh, we do have rituals, but they're usually very petty bourgeois. They're usually related to things like tea um, and cricket. Um, but in terms of, of grand religious tradition, I think the one, the one thing I've had the opportunity to experience and study the most is the funeral. And I've become something of a, uh, a connoisseur of the funeral. I have been just so many of, I, I've also had a lot of elderly friends. So many of my friends have died down the years that I've experienced them all. I've seen them all. So it's a, it's a subject I love discussing. And that's why there's a lot of it in the book. Yes, yes. Well, I think your discussion is extremely interesting. And it, it's, um, well, tell us what, what, what you discovered in your, in your, um, in, well, in your thinking what, about this. What I've discovered is that this, this is probably the biggest thing that happens during your life, right? You die. <laughs> and, most, and most people don't know what to do. I don't just mean the dying person. I mean, that varies. The experience of death varies enormously. Some people are very good at it. Uh, other people really fight against it. But what I mean is the people left behind um, are unprepared for it. One is usually in denial. You don't want to sit around thinking about how to respond to the death of a loved one. Sometimes it comes as a surprise. And this is the moment in your life at which you really need someone to speak for you. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, someone puts words in your mouth. It doesn't mean that you surrender the identity and the individuality of the deceased and just say to the church, right, you go home and say, but I have noticed that where there is a role for ritual, paradoxically, given that you would think that what you want is a ceremony which exactly reflects the individual's character, paradoxically, those ceremonies often are the ones which carry least emotional punch and least effectively articulate the feelings and experiences of the mourners. Whereas I've noticed that where the individual is to some extent surrendered to a, a church's ritual, that is the service which very often best articulates what people are going through and gives them the opportunity emotionally and psychologically to express themselves and articulate themselves. I mean, I, 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 for instance, I, I have friends in Scotland, so I've, I've come to become somewhat au fait with the Scottish Catholic way of death. And I find it fascinating. Um, the body is very often put out in the church the night before. There is an evening of prayers. Um, the family very often come to look at the body. Uh, the body is placed in a shroud. Uh, after the death uh, there uh, and after the funeral, which of course is by the usual Catholic liturgy, there is usually quite an extended wake. In other words, there is a very carefully and cleverly structured process of mourning, which tells someone who at that point is in total emotional turmoil where to stand and what to do. And they're free to think whatever they think. Yeah. And they're there through the eulogy, which is obviously very popular nowadays, they're there through the eulogy to articulate the individuality of the person who's died. But I'm really struck, as I say, that the more heavily ritualized something is, in my experience, the better it articulates things. Yeah. And just to finish, even those funerals where people are invited, where they, where because I've been to many dozens of ordinary humanist crematorium funerals, and when people are invited, tell us what you want. What's striking is how they either say, actually, can you tell me what to do? Yes. Or they, or they, everyone says the same thing. They all want the same hymns. They all want the same readings. And they do that because those hymns and those readings are beautiful and they reflect much better than I, with a PhD from Cambridge, could ever articulate the experience of death.
There's something that I went to uh, a funeral a few a few months ago where I was asked to give a reading, and it was a not very religious uh, person, and so I chose to read a piece of Winnie the Pooh, um, and, and and it was all about friendship. It's the line about where are you? I'm here, and all that sort of thing. I just wanted to be sure of you. It, it, it makes me crack. It makes me start to tear up even thinking about it. It's good for a reason. People choose these things for a reason. So this is so in in sum. My experience is the more that actually one invites ritual into your life, uh, the fuller your experience of humanity is and the better you're able to express and experience the human journey. Yes, yes, that, that, that's very interesting. One can uh, broaden the, the, um, the, the idea here um, in, in, in relation to the liturgical reform. One of the, one of the difficulties with the the reformed Catholic liturgy in general is that it attempts to control the individual worshippers' response. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you, you, for the I mean, most obviously, by having everything in the vernacular in the language, worshippers understand. Ideally, well, that idea isn't always met, but ideally, um, you are kind of putting ideas, very very specific ideas, into the worshippers' mind. Yes. Um, which which are appropriate to the mass in some way, but not necessarily appropriate to the worshippers' mood. Mm. Um, you're also insisting that he stand, sit, kneel, you know, sing, um, in a way that the traditional liturgy just doesn't do. Yes. In the traditional liturgy, you can do anything you like. You can go to sleep in your pew. Yes. No one will mind. Yeah. Whereas, and I remember, this is an experience of mine in my, in my childhood, a priest, um, bellowing at the congregation stand kneel <laughs> if i can just say at this moment because this is one of my real bugbears when it comes to discussing the liturgy is i'm a convert to the church right so sp speaking as an outsider i find it so funny when contemporary catholics say that they've they have got rid of ritual or made it simpler or more easy to understand i can tell you as a convert stepping in i understood nothing of what was going on <laughs> it, it might it might just as well have been in greek or latin yeah. And I went to a funeral a, a few years ago uh, of a Catholic lady who kind of rediscovered her faith at the end. So the funeral, to some people's surprise, was a very Catholic funeral. Obviously, modern, new rite and everything. Um, and so 90% of the family were not Catholics. And it was that experience of sit, stand, we're going to say this now, now we're going to do that. That is as strange and alienating as an experience as saying something in Latin. And I find it so funny when the modern church imagines that it's become easier to navigate. Yeah. Really, actually, a yeah. ritual in which this thing is happening over there and you are a witness to it and you participate in it, but it doesn't keep insisting <laughs> that you get involved, uh, actually lends itself very well to moments like death. When people want to be, want something placed in front of them that focuses the attention, that articulates what they're going through, but which also leaves them free to mourn, just yeah. to mourn. Yeah. Where this, this strange holiday camp approach towards religion, everybody stand up, give a round of applause. I, it, it's really quite inappropriate to the death state. It's, yeah. it's not what a lot of people psychologically need at that moment. Yes, yes, it, 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 indeed. Indeed, it's, it's, it's well, Pius Twelfth said this in, in the Mediato Day. He, he says that, okay, maybe people can follow the, the, the prayers of the Mass in a, in a hand missile, and, you know, that, that's great. But 
not everyone's going to want to do that all the time. You know, some people can't read. Some people are too tired or, you know, they're in shock or they're in mourning or they're thinking about something else. And they must be allowed to participate in the mass in their own way. Right. And that's that's what it enables us. To, on the one hand, it gives us the language. It gives us ritual gestures and, and, and in, in, in general, all of this communion with God. Um, but on the other hand, it actually allows us to respond individually. Yes. It's 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 indeed, I and mean, this is something which is which is, is used as a criticism of the traditional mass that it's too individualistic. It's not sufficiently communal. Mm. Um, so it, it has, you know, the, the contrary, as you say, is a kind of holiday camp approach, which is which is actually desperately embarrassing. Well, it's the it's the I mean, I believe it can be done well, but it's it's definitely the mass of the extrovert. And there are a lot of us who are deeply introverted. <laughs> and, and I and particularly, again, at moments which are highly personal. Yeah. That's the last moment in which I want to be ordered to shake someone's hand in the sign of the peace. It's that because there are tears in my eyes and snot running down my face and I want to be left alone. Yeah. And, and I've always I've always felt that as a highly introverted, possibly borderline autistic person. I don't know. I, I've always found um, modern Catholic services overwhelming, not in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> not like listening to Wagner, but yeah. overwhelming in the sense of having hands shoved in your face and being compelled to uh, participate. I just that that's. I, uh, oddly, that's not what I thought Catholicism was when I converted to it, and perhaps I had perhaps I'd been going to the wrong churches, but I've had a rude awakening and discovered that it's uh, it, it it isn't quite the the prayerful experience that I thought it was going to be. Yes, yes. Now there's another aspect of which you which you mentioned, which is which is I think very interesting, which is which is about equality. Yes. The, the the experience, as you say, the the the, the kind of a funeral you you get in modern culture is radically determined by your social status yes. in a way that it just wouldn't have been a hundred years ago with a traditional you know context of traditional liturgy, Catholic or Anglican or anything else. Hmm. Would you like to say something about Well, I, I think to be fair, a hundred years ago, certainly there, there would have been a class difference in the quality of funerals in the sense that people could literally buy and would buy mourners um, in the Victorian era, at least. So there, there, would, have been a, there would have been a material difference. But in, in principle, um, when religion is at the heart of the ceremony, every man gets the same thing. If religion isn't at the heart of the ceremony, if you're invited to make it up, then you, it's potluck whether or not you have a family. Uh, that liked you, uh, that is, is of a reasonable size, or has the literacy to organize a service well. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, I've been to funerals of people who uh, were buried by families that just didn't like them or didn't understand them. Uh, I, the, the worst phrase which I hear all the time at funerals is, it's what he would have wanted. <laughs> yeah. Nine times out of ten, that translates into "this is what we wanted," <laughs> and 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 uh, whereas if it is handed over to someone, as I say, there is a there is a genuine, genuine radical e equality, a real equality, not a socialist materialist equality, but an equality of saying every person deserves this thing, right? That's what dignity is. Dignity is getting what you are owed, what you deserve. And that is what a good religious funeral should do. It should give every person the same thing and the same recognition. Because after all, they're on the same journey from here on in. 
Yes, yes, and and what that is is something which should be should be dignified. Yes, we should be should should express the the in the moral importance of of death and of the deceased. Yes, so be something which is which is which respects them as a as a you know as a as a child of God. Yeah. I mean, it, yes, yes. I hope that. Um, um, well, can you hope what happens to me? <laughs> but um, I like to think the Latin mass society does its best by the various people <laughs> associated with it. When do it, you when priests wear black? They died. Do, do Latin mass society uh, funeral rites involve wearing black? They what? certainly do. Yes, you do. Okay, fine. Because that's one, <laughs> again, that's one of my, that one thing I find find very strange is the wearing of white um, at funerals. Yes, white. I also think um, the wearing of a violet the color of, 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 of penance is also strangely inappropriate. Mm. It's not a penitential occasion. It's, a, it's an occasion of grief, not of penance. So it, it, it seemed, yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a real problem, the, the, the getting rid of, of black. Um, right. And the white is supposed to symbolize what resurrection and eternal life. And, but but the, the, again, that's a, a classic example of, a, of an elite mistake. Yeah. That, that, that's not actually serving the psychological needs of the laity. What that's saying to them is, you don't know this because you didn't do seven years in a seminary, but actually this is all about whiteness and resurrection. <laughs> um, but that's not what your laity want. That's not what the flock want. That's not what right? you it, it, it's, it's a denial of, well, it's a refusal to enter into the spirit of grief with, yeah. the, uh, with, with, with the family. It, I mean, it's precisely a, a refusal to do what, what St. Paul says, you know, to, 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 to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and to mourn with those who mourn. Yeah, so it, it is, it's a rejection of the principle of accompaniment. Yes. Which is what uh, the new church is supposed to be all about. Yes, yes, but in fact, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's actually <laughs> much more, uh, uh, we know best, yeah. you know, we, you need to be educated, we, we, you, we need to tell you about, you know. Again, something I find frustrating about uh, the modern church is how it, it will invoke uh, populism or superiority depending upon its mood and the moment yeah. so sometimes it will if it's doing if it has reformed the liturgy in such a way to make it simpler and more happy clappy it will say it's doing what the laity wants if it wishes to invoke a higher principle like that even though the laity hate it yeah. it will say well this is the laity not realizing what the right thing is to do yeah so it, it, it yeah. never, it, it's never on a simple psychological road. Yeah. Uh, and when you have projects like that, which are, are contradictory and paradoxical, it starts to make you think they're actually operating not on the basis of what they say they're operati operating on, but by some other code, yeah. which is really, they just want to reform Catholicism, which is fine, but they, they need to be more open about that rather than pretending that they're simply doing uh, what the laity need or want. Yes. Yes, it's quite, I, when I got married um, with a, a traditional nuptial mass and the, the, the reading the, uh, was, the epistle was St Paul talking about how wives should obey their husbands and the gospel was Jesus' condemnation of divorce um, and someone said to me afterwards, oh the readings, they were very you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well actually, we didn't have any choice. <laughs> they are, they're fixed. It's you know, the votive mass of, of, of um, to go with a wedding is is it has all the you know mass uh, prayers and, and and readings um set and it it's not what you would choose uh, yeah. perhaps um, but it's it, it is appropriate to the occasion and it's necessary it's important yeah. 
yes. and it 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 is it's it is it's to that extent it is guiding um and, and forming your response to um to the occasion um but it's not intrusive it's not intrusive it's not kind of ramming it down your throat um no. they're, they're sung in latin <laughs> right. it's, right. it's 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 not kind of pinning you to the to the to pew and kind of you know banging your head with it it's 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 done in a way which is is an, it, 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 it we this is our way of praising god at this moment to relay god's own words yes about the sacredness of marriage this yeah. isn't an accusation against anyone this is just this is what God has established, and this is what we're celebrating here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another another thing, um, which I remember, um, the first priest training conference that that, that the Latin Mass Society organized, organized um, just on the on just on the cusp of the Simon Pontificum's publication, it was actually addressed by Cardinal Nichols. He came and he celebrated. Um, Vespers in Merton Chapel, and he he gave us a rather extraordinary sermon um, about how he'd been to Auschwitz, and mm -hmm. he he said he was very affected by Auschwitz. He said he just did not know what to think or say, and he went into a chapel there, and he thought he did not have the words even to pray, and he picked up the office, and he suddenly realised that he he was given these words. Mm -hmm. He was able to say the office because it was something objective, something yeah, yeah. which was, it was given to him by the church, which, um, you know, which were the words of God um, and arranged for him. And that was a way in which he could handle his mm -hmm. emotions. Mm -hmm. um, and he didn't have to create it himself. Yes, because you're not in a good space at that moment, you know, when you've got when you're kind of churned up like that. You, you this isn't the moment in which you can create. Yes, um, yes. No, I, we, we have to yeah. be we have to be more humble as a society and a church, um, and we have to acknowledge that other that, that we there had we have these extraordinary civilizational resources that we should fall back onto, and we should make the most of. A popular phrase nowadays is to speak one's truth. Uh, I'm not sure that such a thing exists. I, because I, 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 I don't believe there is any unique individual in the world that has a truth which will, will be completely different from any other individual. But also most, most of us, 99.9% .9 of us, when we're invited to speak our truth, uh, speak inarticulate garbled nonsense. Yes. We, because we're not Mozart, we're not Goethe. <laughs> we, 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 are, we cannot speak like a poet. So therefore, that's why we have the poets. That's why we popularize them, so that they can speak the real truth for us, which usually is your truth. There are almost no, I, I can't, I don't think there's any truth that has not yet been articulated. So you will find your truth there already written for you and better. So why not tap into that resource? Whereas this contemporary obsession with it's better if it comes from the individual because it's yours, because it's authentic, it's therefore morally superior. Well, I, I very much doubt that, but it's certainly also not superior in terms of quality. Yeah, yeah. It never is. Yeah, yeah. And it's it, it, as you say, I mean, it's it's, it's such an, an elite, elite um, project. Um, and it, it's one that discriminates not only against the inarticulate, but against the, you know, the, the person who's in an emotional state, the person who's busy, 
I mean, who wants to spend the last weeks of, of preparation for, for marriage um, thinking about the order of service? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah, another thing to think about. Yes. Oh, I'm trying to book the honeymoon. And, let alone a baptism right, after you've had a child. Let alone having to think about what to say at a baptism. Yes, yes. I, but, I mean, but, but the, you know, the, the worst of all, worst of all, is it must be the funeral. Um, I've, I've never, in fact, had to organise a funeral, but I can imagine um, yeah. far worse ev uh, than, than, than even, even those other things. Yeah, so, um, Tim, I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, thank you very much for that discussion. Pleasure. Um, I think we can we can wrap it up now. We've been we've been going on for a, a bit over an hour, which is what we usually do. I enjoyed it enormously. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and thanks for writing the book. Um, it, it's it's part of this this burgeoning of of, of discussion on this topic, yeah. which is very necessary. Um, yeah. And um, despite despite everything, this is a moment in which people are looking for for something. Definitely. Um, which is um, something objective, something which they can they can appeal to. Something would do some of the heavy lifting for them. Yeah. And, and I, I, I believe there is a correct answer to everything. I do. But I'm also uh, I, I'm open to people searching for their own answers. So long as they engage the conscience and the mind and the intelligence. That's what I really want to see people doing. I want to see people thinking about these issues, wherever it ends up, so long as it's not Satanism, uh, wherever it ends up, I'm happy because I, I, I think one of the worst things about the 21st century is uh, so much of life, technology, everything is conditioned to switch the mind off, to stop you thinking. Yeah. So that's what I want to encourage people to do one of the real joys of writing the book was simply that it got me reading for a couple of years. I read things I'd never read before and my mind is better, my body is healthier because I lead a more intellectual life. So I, I just encourage people to go away and think some more. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by the Latin Mass Society. We hope you enjoyed it and would appreciate your rating and podcast on the platform you're using. If you would like to find out more, do visit our website and consider joining us or giving us a donation.